Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So Psalm 83, as we just continue making our way verse-by-verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible, man, it's a good way to go. And Psalm 83 is really a psalm of prayer, and it's a psalm of imprecation. So in Psalm 83, there's this cry for help. Uh, You know, Israel, in particular Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, they're surrounded by enemies, and and they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, please help, please rescue, please deliver. Uh, But there's also a call for justice. There's this call uh, that the Lord would deal, not necessarily with Judah's enemies, as we're going to see. That's kind of the theme. As the psalmist makes a plea for justice, uh, he makes this plea that God would deal with his own enemies. And so uh, that's kind of key. But, but this is uh, Asaph's last psalm. Uh, we've been trucking through kind of the Asaph era over the last few psalms. And it's dealt primarily uh, with, the, uh, with the leading away into captivity really, of the northern tribes by the Assyrians and the southern tribe uh, or the southern nation uh, of Judah by the Babylonians. And so this is the last uh, psalm of Asaph. But interestingly enough, it doesn't deal with that particular time period historically. We're not 100% sure of what the the background is to this psalm historically, uh, but we do know that there is kind of this coalition of 10 cities that have come against uh, Israel that want to wipe Israel completely off of the map. And there are some similarities between the descriptions in Psalm 83 and the description of King Jehoshaphat when he uh, is fighting against Ammon and Moab and the people of Mount Seir there in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And that was, uh, you know, uh, when there was all these nations, again, it was the Moabites and uh, you know, the Ammonites, the people of Mount so they all these nations had come against uh, Judah. And you remember what uh, Jehoshaphat did? He, he prayed to the Lord. He gathered everybody together, all the men, all the women, all the children, and they all prayed and fasted and said, Lord, would you please help us with this? Would you please deliver us from these uh, enemies who seek to destroy us? And you guys remember what happened? The Lord showed up and said, hey, you know what? You guys are going to be okay. And that's when they sent the worship leaders out first. And as the worship leaders were going out, you know, they're leading uh, the charge out into battle. They probably weren't playing guitars, but, you know, they were going out singing and playing their trumpets or whatever. Uh, The enemies, they turned on each other. And there was this great victory. But if you study those two stories out, there in 2 Chronicles 20, uh, with the victory that King Jehoshaphat uh, experienced at the hand of the Lord, and you... You know, compare that to some of the descriptions that we're going to read about tonight. There is a connection. Uh, I don't think that there's enough of a connection to say that this is the the reference historically. Uh, It it doesn't really matter. Uh, What we do know is that, man, there was lots of enemies. They were all coming against Israel. The situation was hopeless unless the Lord showed up. And so they were crying out to the Lord. Lord, would you defend your name? Would you defend your honor? Would you keep your people and deal with your your enemies? In this psalm, we see uh, this kind of remembrance that the psalmist has as he looks back to God's past faithfulness as an encouragement in present catastrophe. 
And we talk about that often. We're going to talk about it again tonight, how important that is, that when we're going through times of difficulty, that we remember the past uh, deliverances that we've experienced at the hand of the Lord. And so uh, the last thing that we're going to see outside of just the crying out to the Lord to defend his people and his name and his honor uh, as they remember God's past dealings and victories is also during this period of imprecation, and again, an imprecation is just kind of like calling out a curse. It's this prayer where the psalmist prays a curse upon their enemies. But we're going to see what's unique about this particular imprecation, and we'll touch on all these things as we get there in the, the psalm. What's interesting about this particular imprecation in this psalm is that it comes uh, with it, attached to it, uh, this desire not only for God to, to mete out justice, but that through that justice, that the enemy would be ashamed and turn to the Lord and know God, which is really kind of a, a rare thing, but there's a lot for us in that as well. And so, um, yeah, with that, let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 83. A song, a psalm of Asaph. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. And so you can kind of see the dire situation that Judah is in. There are many, many nations around them that have, have them kind of boxed in that want to wipe them off the map. And so verse 1, really the psalmist is just crying out, Lord, do you not see what's going on here? Do you not understand the situation that we're in? Where are you, Lord? Why are you silent? Uh, don't keep silent. Don't hold your peace. Don't be still. And so the psalmist is like, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? Uh, you know, why aren't you moving? And, you know, if we're going to be honest, we've all felt that way. When we've come into seasons of great difficulty, seasons that seem dire, seasons that seem like they really have no way out, we say, Lord, where are you? Like, what are you up to? What are you accomplishing in all of this in my life? Lord, do you hear what's going on? Do you, do you care what's going on? Lord, where are you? It, it's natural for us to have those sort of feelings when we're going through difficulties, but we have the answers to those questions. Uh, we know where the Lord is. Where is the Lord? And he's on his throne. Uh, we know what the Lord is up to. The Lord is working all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so while it might seem very often from our perspective when we're in the midst of the storm that God is silent, that God is still, that God doesn't care, and we can be assured, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is on the throne. He's sovereign. And nothing is catching him off guard. Nothing is getting by him. Uh, justice will be met out. He'll, he'll come through, and he, he, he's at work. So the Lord is on the throne, and he's always at work. Never forget that. And so, again, the, the, the psalmist, after he says, Lord, where are you? He begins to describe his dire situation. And he does that really by, uh, you know, 
calling out all of the enemies that are round about Israel. Uh, all these ten nations, uh, he begins to kind of call them out by name. Uh, these nations, first of all, he kind of describes what they're up to. Let's, let's go back a little bit. I don't want to skip ahead. Uh, he, he, he says, Lord, your enemies. Again, that's going to be a key thing. And we'll get to that during the imprecation part of this psalm. But the psalmist never loses sight of the fact that, Lord, these men are, are, are rising up against you. They're causing a tumult. Uh, they're raging against you, God. They have, uh, they've lifted up their head, uh, which is a, a way to say that they've been prideful against you. They think that they're untouchable. Lord, you can't touch them. Uh, that's what these men and uh, these warriors say about you, Lord. They've, they've lifted up their head against you. They've taken crafty counsel, or, or they're being sneaky. They're setting traps. They've consulted together uh, against your sheltered ones. Uh, all these nations have, have formed this confederacy. It's not just one, uh, but it's, it's many. And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, man, the, these enemies of yours, they're united uh, they, they hate you, uh, they're proud, and they're coming for us. Lord, we are really in a bad situation. And then he begins to name off all of the nations uh, that are involved here. And so Edom is the first nation that's mentioned. And Edom, they were the descendants of Esau. Um, uh, so, you know, of course, there was that great tension between uh, Esau and his brother, there was the war. They were like uh, two nations warring in the womb. They were twins there. Uh, and so Esau, uh, you know, he, he was an enemy of Israel, and his descendants were also. The Ishmaelites, remember the story of Abraham? Abraham uh, had uh, Ishmael with Hagar when he stepped outside of God's will. The father of faith, he had this great lapse of faith and he tried to accomplish God's will in his own energy. Always a big mistake. Always a big mistake. We've all been there too, to try to accomplish God's will in our own energies. But Ishmael was born, and his descendants uh, were a big trouble for Israel as well. Moabites, they were descendants of Lot, um, Abraham's cousin, through this disgusting, incestuous relationship. Uh, the Hagarites, they were a nomadic tribe uh, east of the Jordan River. Uh, Gibal was a community south of the Dead Sea. The Ammonites, again, descendants of Lot. The Amalekites, more descendants of Esau. Remember the Amalekites, when the nation of Israel first left uh, Egypt, and they're making their way through the Promised Lands. The Amalekites, they attacked this helpless group of refugees from the back. Now, what was in the back of the pack when Israel was making their way through the desert? The old people, the sick people. And so it was a super disgraceful attack that the Amalekites made against God's people. Uh, Philistia, those are the Philistines. Um, we're familiar with them. Goliath was uh, a Philistine. Tyre, in David's day, they were uh, allies with Israel, providing a lot of the material for the temple, but now uh, enemies. Assyria, we've learned a lot about Assyria. Uh, they were the, the hardcore military tribe from the north who really just took over everybody in their uh, heyday, brutal uh, warriors. Uh, and so they were surrounded. All of these different enemies of Israel represent different geographical locations. Uh, you know, Philist, uh, the, the Philistines to the west, uh, Assyrians to the north, 
the Moabites to the east. They were surrounded on all sides. And that was why the psalmist was crying out with such, uh, you know, passion. Lord, we're going to be toast if you don't show up. We are surrounded on all sides and there is no way out. And sometimes that's what it's like in life. Sometimes that's how our problems come. It just seems like it's one thing after another after another. And we're just surrounded on all sides. And we just can't seem to catch a break. 1 Peter 1.6 is a particularly encouraging uh, passage when we're going through difficulty like that. When it just seems like we can't catch a break and trouble is coming from every direction. 1 Peter 1.6 says, in, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... If need be, you have been grieving by various trials, or manifold tribulations is the way I memorized it in the King James, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, you believing, uh, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter says, man, sometimes that's the way it is. We're just going through manifold tribulations. It seems like it's coming from every direction. But know that the Lord is working into us characteristics that can only be worked into us that way. And so when you're going through it and you're asking the Lord those questions, why? Understand that sometimes you're just not going to understand. Sometimes you're, and, and here's the, the kicker with that, is that we were pretty smug as human beings in thinking that we understand. We always like, oh, you know, Lord, where are you? How come you're not showing up? In that very statement, we're saying that we understand the situation and that God is in error for not showing up. See, the truth of the matter is most of the time we have no idea what's going on. And in fact, the Bible declares that even on our best day, our spiritual glasses are like, looking through a foggy uh, mirror. We just don't quite get it, even though we think we do. I was coming home uh, with Abram today, and for those of you who don't know, there might be one or two of you in here. Abram is my five-year-old son. And we went and got our haircuts, and we're on our way uh, coming home, and he says to me with such great surety, Dad, do you know why giraffes have black stripes and white stripes? I said, oh, buddy, I think you mean zebra. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, zebra. He says, do you know why zebras have black and white stripes? I said, nobody, why don't you tell me why zebras have black and white stripes? He says, so when they run away from people, it makes people dizzy. I thought, oh, man. And he was just so sure he knew how it all worked out, but he was wrong. And that's the way we are. We think that we understand how things are fitting together, but we don't. And so when we're going through it, say, Lord, I don't understand, but we can trust that you're working good things into us through this present situation. And so... Sometimes it's just coming at us from all different angles. But the truth of the matter, even when it doesn't feel like we are dealing with a hundred different issues, we're in a spiritual war. We really are surrounded by enemies of our soul, even as the Israelites were surrounded by enemy nations. Uh, we live uh, in this world, uh, you know, that's a fallen world filled with its pitfalls. Uh, we are, are carnal in nature and our carnal nature loves to run to things that are contrary to who God is. We have an enemy whose goal is to kill, steal, and destroy, uh, constantly tempting us. And so, you know, we are surrounded by enemies all the time, spiritual for sure. 
But the reality is no matter what we're going through, if we're going through manifold tribulations, or if we just consider the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on around us, what is our recourse? What's the same recourse that the psalmist is taking? That we acknowledge God and we say, Lord, we're crying out to you. We acknowledge that you are our refuge, that you are our shield, that you are our strength, and there's no way around it. See, the psalmist knew where to turn, and that is a word for us. Don't forget, again, I talk about it all the time, but it really is the truth that so often when we're going through it, and I find myself doing it too, I will run to somebody before I will run to the Lord. I will look from advice from my wife or from a close friend and say, oh, you know what? Maybe I should bring this before the Lord. We belong to him. He's the one who's going to take care of us. So these nations, they've come against Israel. Now, before we move any further, I want you to understand just a little bit. So when you're studying this out, there's kind of two directions that, that Bible teachers will take with this, that the commentators go. One is that all of these enemies being listed in this way is just kind of a picture of all of Israel's enemies collectively. Uh, that, that's one way to look at it. Or that this was just an event, if it wasn't the event in Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is just an unknown battle. So just kind of know that. But the goal of these nations, no matter how you slice it, the, the text tells us was to wipe Israel out, to completely annihilate Israel. Did you see the, the, the words, the verbiage that was used to come and let us cut Israel off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. They want to wipe Israel off the map. They want to erase Israel's memory completely. And you say, man, that is so harsh. I'd like to point out that there have been many wicked men throughout the generations who have wanted to completely annihilate Israel. It really is unprecedented, and it's more than any other people group that have ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, think about, uh, you know, Pharaoh back in Exodus uh, wanted to, to wipe out the, the Hebrew people. They had grown to many in number. He was fearful that they were going to revolt. And remember what he did? He was going to kill all the baby boys. He was going to put their population in check. Well, God had different plans, didn't he? And he raised up Pharaoh and actually delivered all of his people. Uh, there in the book of Esther, uh, wicked Haman. Man, he tried to eradicate God's people, and he made no bones about it. He made his whole case on why they should get rid of the Jews, and it was gaining popularity. But the Lord intervened and stopped Haman, and he hung from the own, his own gallows that he built uh, for Mordecai. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, not recorded in Scripture, but well-known in history in that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where this uh, crazy general... Uh, was hell-bent on annihilating uh, the Jewish people. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and that whole situation, that it's a, a crazy, amazing story. It's where Hanukkah comes from. It's worth checking out if you're kind of one of those geeks who like to geek out on stuff like that. Uh, Titus, he was the Caesar uh, in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. 1.1 million Jews killed during that event. Another 100,000 Jews taken into slavery. Uh, then, of course, the great uh, diaspora, when the Jews were spread throughout all of the world, there was really no homeland for them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then Hitler came along in World War II. And he convinced many, many people that the Jews were uh, 
the reason for every single problem that your business is failing, oh, it's because the Jew's cheating. Uh, you're sick, it's because the Jews did this. The, it was the Jews' fault for everything, and people bought into it. And in mass, neighbors were turning in their Jewish neighbors to the secret police. They were turning a blind eye as families were being drugged out of their house in the middle of the night, drug off to concentration camps where they were murdered. Six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Can you believe that? Six million Jews. That is crazy. And there are people that have the audacity to say, oh, you know what, that's just all propaganda. That never really happened. You're like, what? Are you crazy? And they are. But that whole situation in World War II with Hitler and the concentration camps led to the 1947 resolution by the UN to give Israel back their homeland. And in 1948, Israel became a nation. Uh, a nation was born in a day. Uh, even as it says in Isaiah, who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Man, uh, not normally, not according to the world standards, but when God is in control, boy, it happens. And like that, Israel was born in a day, and people flocked from all over the world back to their homeland. But no sooner had they become a nation than their enemies round about them tried to wipe them out again, and it was the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia all came against Israel. And what happened? Israel won. Like, miraculous, they had no military, they had no real government, and they put the hurt on all these nations that had sophisticated weaponry. Again, in 1967, the Six-Day War, uh, this time it was Egypt and Syria and Jordan, again, came at uh, Israel. But Israel preemptively struck, and they won that war supernaturally as well. And out of that came uh, the Khartoum Resolution which you probably know as the famous three no's from the Arab League, which means uh, no recognition of Israel, no negotiations with Israel, and no peace with Israel. And the Arab nations, they live by that even today. And that's why the Abraham Accords were such an amazing thing. You say, what's going on? This peace that is taking place, these Arab nations have vowed, man, we are never going to recognize Israel. We're never going to negotiate with Israel, and there is no peace with Israel ever. Iran, boy, they have made it absolutely clear what they want to do. In 2005, uh, Amur Ahmadinejad, their then president, said, you know what, we're going to wipe Israel from the map. That was their whole goal. And then these news reports go around like, oh, that's just being blown out of proportion. Did he really say that? Yes, he said that. That was a, a quote that he said. 2019, you just fast forward and they show their hand. Uh, Hossein Salami who is their, uh, he's like their uh, top general. He says this, he says, our strategy is to race Israel from the map and it's now an achievable goal. He said that in 2019. In 2020, uh, Ali uh, Hakmini, which is their uh, Ayatollah now, their supreme leader, he had this uh, poster that talked about the annihilation of the Jews that said final solution. Now, if you're familiar with World War II, that was Hitler's whole thing, this final solution to deal with uh, the Jew. Uh, in 2022, the same guy, the supreme leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, I said his name different twice. It's because I don't really know how to say it, but I, that's what it is. He said the Muslims must fight until the annihilation of Israel. And then we say, well, you know, Iran, they just want to make clean electricity. 
give them nuclear power. What's the big deal? Come on. Are you kidding me? Uh, we see this on and death to Israel, death to Israel, death to Israel. There has been no nation in the history of the world that has experienced uh, so many foes coming against them all the time with the goal to exterminate them from the face of the planet. And you say, all right, Pastor Jeremy, we get it. Why do I belabor the point? Because nobody succeeded. Little old teeny tiny Israel has not been moved. Why? Because they're God's people. You see, that's important for us to understand. See, there are, they're untouchable because they belong to the Lord. Why should we care about that? Well, they belong to the Lord because of the covenant that God made with his people. There in Genesis chapter 12, when he said to Abraham, hey, you go where I'm going to show you to go, and we'll make this deal, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and I'm going to bless you. In Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God and to you and your descendants after you. See, it's important to us because when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. He made a promise to Israel that they were his people and that he would take care of them. And he's held up that promise. Uh, God has made us a promise that if we trust on his son, Jesus Christ, then our foes will be defeated, namely sin and death. And that's wonderful news. Boy, we can hold on to that. And this whole thing with Israel, by the way, it's still in play. They have still not surrendered to the person of Jesus. They do not recognize the Messiah to this day. But they're still God's people, aren't they? And God's going to see them through. Although they're, they're currently rejecting, although they are currently forsaking, although they are currently blinded, Man, they won't be someday. That persecution will continue on. And sometime in the future, maybe the near future, there will be this political individual who will come on the scene. He'll be known as the Antichrist. And this dude will be one smooth-talking son of a gun, and he's going to have all the answers, and he's going to bring about this false sense of peace. But then when Israel buys it hook, line, and sinker, man, he's going to turn on them. But it will be through that that God saves his people. They'll understand that they persecuted the Messiah. And Jews will be saved in the droves through that whole situation. Uh, the tribulation ushered in in that period. But although Israel is currently rejecting the Lord, he's not done with them. And Romans chapter 11 goes through all of that with absolute surety. Hey, listen. And it's a warning to us as believers that as we look upon the Jew and say, hey, listen, geez, you know what? Uh, they're missing out, and we're kind of reaping all the benefits. Paul says to the believer, don't get too smug about that. Don't get too smug thinking that, that you know, uh, Israel is still fallen, and you belong to the Lord, and, and he hasn't, you know, that he's forgotten about them. And Paul's very clear. He says, you know, wild branches were broken off that you might be grafted in, and it was because of their unbelief. Uh, be respectful. Fear the Lord. Because if he can break off the wild branches, he can break off the ones that were grafted in. Instead, rejoice. Uh, you know, Paul says, man, that salvation came to the world through the disbelief of the Jew. 
What a great blessing that was that the Jew didn't believe. And then in order to cause them to be jealous, the gospel was given to the Gentiles. Through their unbelief, the world found salvation. Paul says, how much more so will the world be blessed when they find salvation? That's just like, I don't know why that clicked for me today, but imagine how amazing it's going to usher in the kingdom. It's going to be an amazing season. Anyways, uh, the Lord is not done with Israel. That's important. As we look at this description of all of these nations gathering around Israel to wipe them off the face of the map, man, it's still going on today. And men have tried, men will try, and they will all fail because Israel belongs to the Lord. That's good news to us, again, because it's because of God's promises. We are his children, and he will see us through even as he's seen Israel through. And that should encourage us uh, greatly. So pray for the peace of Israel, not just geopolitically, not just with their conflict currently, but pray for the peace of Israel spiritually, that they would have true peace with the Lord. So this first section, these first uh, few verses, really just kind of, uh, you know, going over their, their dire situation. Uh, Lord, where are you? This is what's going on. All of these enemies, this 10-nation confederacy has surrounded us. Uh, they're, you know, uh, prideful against you, Lord. Uh, they're making a tumult. They're crafty. Uh, they want to wipe us off the face of the planet. And now, in verse 9 through 18, the end of this chapter, it really is the psalmist's plea to bring about uh, justice, to deal with uh, his enemies. Uh, verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Uh, so these few verses really, uh, this is where Israel is, is looking back. This is where the psalmist is pointing back to God's past faithfulness. Again, I opened up with that statement, how important it is that in our current struggles, we look back to God's past faithfulness to really see us through the crises that we're in at the moment. And that's exactly what uh, the psalmist is doing. As he's saying, Lord, deal with these enemies, he's saying, deal with them like you did in the past. Remember these past victories? Remember, Lord, how you dealt with our enemies back then? And he makes reference to the, the Midian, uh, the Midianites. Now, that's back in Judges chapter 7. You guys remember the story with Gideon. Gideon was, uh, you know, one who the Lord raised up to deliver his people. In those days, uh, Israel was overrun by the Midianites. And they were being bullied. And every time harvest season came along, boy, the Israelites, they would, they would plow and they would sow and they would tend. And then the crops would come up and they would harvest. And then as they're getting all their wheat ready to, to you know, make into the kernels as they're threshing it and doing all the rest, boy, the Midianites would wait till all the work was done and they'd show up and they'd steal Israel's lunch money every single year during harvest time. And so it got to the point to where Israel was hiding. See, when you're, you're threshing wheat, when you're knocking it off the kernel and then you're throwing it in the air that the, the chaff may blow away so you can just get the little husk, the part that you want to eat, you want to get rid of the husk and get the kernel, uh, 
you would do that on a hilltop. Throw it in a blanket, whoosh, the wind would blow away the, the chaff, the papery substance on the outside, uh, and then you'd be left with the good stuff. The thing is, that's like a calling card. If you're the enemy looking to steal Israel's lunch money, you're like, oh, there they are on that hillside, let's go get them. And so what they began to do is they were doing this down in the wine press. They were hiding, no wind, no nothing. And so the Lord shows up to Gideon and calls him, hey, you, you're a mighty man of valor, Gideon. He's like, what, who, me? Are you? He's like, that's one of those cases you look behind him. Like, you got to be talking about somebody else. I'm hiding from the Midianites. But the Lord raised up Midian. And remember this whole thing where Midian, he, or Gideon, not Midian. Gideon had to, uh, you know, gather up the guys that would fight with him. And the Lord separated this huge portion of the best fighters and said, no, you're just going to go after the enemy with just the, the old dudes. Just a handful of old dudes. And there by night... You guys know the story. They broke their pots and the light shone. And the Midianites, they turned on themselves and killed each other. The Lord did work. The Lord fought the enemy for Israel. And so now the psalmist here in Psalm 83 is saying, Lord, would you fight our battles for us like you did then? How much did Israel have to do with the defeat of the Midianites? Nothing. They just did what the Lord told them to do. There was no brawn or military strategy involved whatsoever. Uh, the next References to Sisera uh, and to uh, Jabin. So Jabin was the king of, of Canaan. This is another story from Judges. And, uh, you know, he's described there in Judges 4, uh, Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. He's got 900 iron chariots. That was like having 900 Abrams tanks back in the day. They were the most fierce war machines around. And so you couldn't mess with Jabin. And uh, this time came where Deborah was like, hey, Barak, man, you're going to get up and you're going to do something about this? Or are you just going to let these guys just kind of steamroll over uh, your people? And Barak said to Deborah, well, yeah, I'll go if you go. And can you imagine what a weak man? Just as, don't be like Barak. I'll go if you come with me. And Deborah's like, fine, I'll go. You wuss. But when we defeat them, credit's going to go to a woman. And remember how it went? Boy, man, they routed the Canaanites. And Jabin the king was on the run. And he went running into the tent of this woman named Jael. One of the coolest stories in the scripture. She's like, oh, you look like you're tired. Come in. Have a seat. Lay down. Cozied him up in the blanket. Can I get you something to drink? How about some warm milk? Puts him to sleep. And then while he's sleeping, drives a tent peg through his temples and nails his head to the ground. Barak shows up. He's like, yeah, we did it. And Deborah's like, nah, she did it. Credit's going to her. He should have been more brave. Anyways, how much did Israel have to do with that victory? Again, it's another victory that the Lord won for them. And so this is the part of this uh, psalm where the psalmist is saying, hey, when you're in trouble, where your tendency is to be overcome by your circumstances, instead, trust the Lord. And you say, how can I trust the Lord when everything is so crazy? Look back to God's past faithfulness as a reference point. And you say, well, I don't even remember any time that the Lord has delivered me out of any situation. Well, just keep going. I still can't. Keep going. Keep going. And, and eventually you'll get to the cross of Calvary. And that's the most important deliverance you can ever experience as a human being. And it's enough to stand on. 
See, when you're going through it, remember the times that God has seen you through. And if you're honest, when you're done throwing the pity party, you will remember times when the Lord has been good to you. And stand on those. And I don't mean to be mean. I know what it's like to be in a bad place. I really do. And if you're there and, you're, and you can't shake it and lean on the Lord, uh, I don't mean anything by that. Uh, but I do mean to sometimes you know, there's that choice that we make to either get stuck or to trust. And it's a choice to trust. And I want to encourage you to trust. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, look back at all of this stuff uh, that was going on. Would you, would you be faithful like you were then? Uh, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. Those were generals, Zeba and Zalmunna. They were kings uh, in the area. Uh, verse 11. This is where the imprecation started. 13, pardon me. Verse 13. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods, as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You see what I'm saying? There's that imprecation mixed with this desire for salvation for their enemies, which is unusual. But those imprecations are, are, are serious. There's these similes. Lord, like whirling dust, like take them out, like chaff before the wind, as fire burns the wood, uh, as the mountains catch on fire, pursue them like a storm. All of these uh, descriptions uh, about how the psalmist desires for the Lord to deal uh, with their enemies. Just pursue them, that they would be blown away, that there would be no surety whatsoever. Consume them like a, a wildfire consumes the woods. Uh, pursue them like the fire pursues, uh, you know, the, the fuel. I tell you what, have you guys, you know, we just had the fire last year. What was the name of that fire? I can't even remember. McKinney Fire. Yeah, we all got evacuated. Man, that was a pain. But praise the Lord that it didn't, uh, you know, burn anything up. And by the way, that was one of those things we can look back and say, wow, the Lord did something crazy. You guys remember looking at how insane that fire was? How it blew up and it was rushing towards town like nobody's business? And then everybody starts praying. It's interesting the way when things get crazy and you think your house might burn down, you start to pray to the Lord. Everybody starts praying, and what happens? You watch the radar as this insane cell camps out over the heart of the fire, and then all of a sudden it's out. So, whoa, that's crazy. You know what a witness that was to so many people in our community? People have said, man, I'm an atheist, but I know God's hand was in that. What? Come on. That's crazy. I don't know why I told that story. Oh, because when you go up there... Have you, if you've been up there, it looks like a nuclear bomb went off. It is annihilated. We went up looking for mushrooms, and we didn't find anything but ash. And, and, I mean, like, burnt matchsticks. It's crazy how a fire will annihilate a forest. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, would you annihilate them like a forest fire annihilates the woods? You say, ouch. Man, that's, that's rough. I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with these imprecations. Uh, that, that they would be praying such harshness upon somebody else. But what I want you to understand is this is not a personal vendetta. Remember when I said that this whole idea of the psalmist saying, Lord, come against your enemies, they're coming against you. See, the psalmist is really concerned with God's glory. 
uh, with God's name. Uh, not a personal vendetta. This was a call for God to deal with his enemies, his glory, and to defend his own honor. It, it, it wasn't personal at all, uh, but it was spiritual. Uh, and again, we see that there's this desire of the psalmist, say, Lord, through this, after you smoke them, after you tear them up like a, a storm, Lord, would you use that shame that comes into their life to bring about salvation, that they might find you? And you know what? That is crazy, uh, but it's true. Uh, the psalmist says, Lord, the Gentile nations need to know that you are the one and only God. Remember, all these nations that are coming against Israel, they're serving all sorts of false gods, wicked idols. They're involved in all sorts of crazy worship to these idols. And the psalmist says, Lord, take them out because they're your enemies. They've come against you. But, but save them in the process. There is a, a deep desire in the psalmist's heart that the enemy, more than the enemy's destruction, he wishes that they would be turned into God's friends and wishes for their chastisement as the means to end it. Uh, I thought that was uh, a really good. Um, but sometimes, you know, we get this idea that, that the Lord just wants to wipe those people out. But he doesn't. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven is very clear. God says that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live that the wicked would turn from their way and live. And, and that's to be our prayer. See, as we look at these imprecation prayers, again, this is not a model prayer for us. When you're in the line at, you know, the coffee shop and the person in front of you is like, ooh, a smoothie, what's in that? You're like, oh, come on, I'm late for work. Just order that thing. Lord, would you just rout those people and burn them up like a forest fire? Would you chase them like the, you know, no, that's not what we're, we're to do. We're to pray for people, even for people who have come against us. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, we're to pray for those who are enemies against God. Because here's the thing. Your pastor was once an enemy of God. You were once enemies of God. It's while we were yet sinning that Christ died for us. What a wonderful thing that is. Uh, pray for those uh, who are lost. Pray for those who have wounded you, who have hurt you. Uh, that's our job. That's what we're to do, uh, is to pray for them. And so when you feel like you're surrounded, when you feel like, man, everything's coming against you, man, the psalmist gives us this beautiful uh, picture uh, of what to do, to turn to the Lord, because he is our defender. We can turn to him uh, with confidence. And we know that we can turn to him with confidence because we can look back to our past and we can see those areas in our lives where the Lord has been faithful. And when you get into those situations, when the Lord comes through, make note of those. Be like Joshua when he was crossing the Jordan Grab some stones out of the river and make a monument and say, I'm never going to forget this day in my life, Lord, so that when things are crazy, I can look back and know. Never forget. Justice, and remember justice is God's business. He will accomplish it. He will. But that's his job. And that our job, our business, is to pray for the lost and show them the way through the example of our lives and the preaching of the word. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.